0: Tuning into Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerti, and today is our 50th episode to celebrate we're talking to one of my heroes, two-time Academy Award winner, the legend, Mr. Phil Tippett. From the cantina, to the chess table, to the at to the creature shop, Mr. Tippett was one of the driving forces of not only the Star Wars world we know today, but the visual effects landscape as a whole. This is Talking Bay 94, Episode 50, Phil Tippett. Before we we dive into your work on Star Wars and and everything else, I would first love to hear about what inspired you growing up and what made you want to initially jump into this world of stop motion and and visual effects.
1: Well, initially, I didn't have any idea what it was. Uh, I kind of uh, ran across my radar when I was like, you know, between five and seven years old with uh, uh, the 1933 production of King Kong was on television. Uh, when I was around five. And then um, in uh, 1958, Ray Harryhausen's Seven Forges Sinbad came out. And so it was those two uh, movies that kind of you know got me fascinated by that stuff.
0: And then how did you pursue that professionally? What Where did you go to school, and, and how did you first kind of start putting those pieces together?
1: Uh, well, there were no periodicals at that time. In the, in the 50s and the 60s. The only thing that existed was a kind of a pulpy magazine called Famous Monsters at Filmland that, that was edited by a guy named Forrest J. Ackerman, who happened to be a friend of Ray Bradbury and Ray Harryhausen. And so I made connection with uh, Forrest And when I was a little bit older, a teenager would go up and visit when Ray came into town to promote his movies. And uh, a little bit before that, I had uh, gotten in contact with Jim Danforth, who worked on a number of uh, movies that had some stop motion characters in it the Wonderful World of Betty's Grand and uh, the Seven Faces of Dr. Lowe. And Jim uh, was the head of the animation department at a commercial uh, house called Cascade Pictures of California, which is a pretty big deal. And so uh, I went up and that's where I met a bunch of people, you know, that I subsequently worked with, Tom Sanamon, who built a lot of the amateurs and animated, Dennis Miller and Ken Ralston, John Berg, well, it was kind of a hub for where all the, you know, only people that were interested in that stuff kind of showed up and found work, and it was run by this really great guy, Phil Kellison who uh, was really supportive and kind of let us use our, the, the tools and to have to work on our own projects. So it was kind of our graduate school. There was no education.
0: Yeah,
1: You know, no nobody taught this kind of stuff. Yeah. So it was all, well, the education was self-education. You just taught yourself.
0: What was it like then getting on board with the Star Wars production. I know you first came on for the Cantina Aliens under under Rick Baker. What was that like first getting in, in touch with Lucas and with Rick and, and then moving into the stop motion aspect of that first movie especially? You know, I think
1: you know, everything is reduced. So I was just reading an article in one of my science magazines that was kind of a demographic survey about careers and careers that relied on luck Uh to take off. And the highest scores were, uh, I mean, the highest scores, the ones that required the most luck to be successful were heavy metal rock and roll bands (laughs) and scientists and filmmakers. Uh And so, you know, it's all reduced to that. It's just luck. It's just being in the right place at the right time, Knowing the right people and uh, having the skill level that you know that, that's ready to go at any time, it's kind of like a you know fast hamburger or something, just sitting there under the light, yeah. just waiting for someone <laughs> to pick it up.
0: That's great. Well, so with the original like that cantina shop, that original kind of uh, modicum for for what the creature shop eventually became, what was your process like? I know. Uh, Mr. Baker brought in some of his own masks, but then designing those initial creatures, what kind of flourishes were you making? I know that there was the, the goo monster that never made the final cut. What was it like kind of being able to put some of these things into practice finally and kind of exploring these different elements of, of building these alien worlds?
1: Well, well, there wasn't much explore exploration. We had like six weeks. I mean, <laughs> uh, George's direction was make as many space aliens as you can in six weeks. Right. And uh, yeah, we started with George. I oh, was we pretty much getting free reign. I and mean, there was a couple of, uh, you know, two or three uh, designs that Ron Cobb had done that we turned into costumes. And then we just kind of ad libbed and built over a bunch of Rick's existing late has pullover masks. And then, um, you know, we put everything in boxes and took it down to a little insert stage on La Brea Avenue. And George uh, directed and Carol Ballard's. Uh, uh, with the VP, and George uh, had us put our own masks on, invited other people that were working at ILM. We were just freelancers. We were not working for ILM. Time, but um, the subcontracted out, and so we played uh, a bunch of the aliens. The costume department would put outfits on us and shot it over the period of like a couple of days, and that was that. They were all inserts. They were from the the scene that George had previously shot that he wasn't happy with, and and he just wanted some more more space aliens.
0: Well, then what was the process of, of George then turning to you for stop motion, for the chess table scene? How did you? Kind of shimmy then into into that process.
1: And I was just sheer luck. I mean, <laughs> I just happened to have a stop motion puppet that I'd made when I was like a teenager. Uh-huh. And it was sitting there, and George happened to see it. And that kind of gave me the idea I could do it as stop motion. Previously, he was going to do it as people with masks, And uh, then Michael Crichton had come out with Future World that had a similar kind of a gag, and George didn't want to duplicate that, so he asked us if we could, this is right at the end of the schedule, asked us if we could scramble together uh, a bunch of space, stop-motion space aliens, and, and shoot that. It was, it was literally in the last month of the, of the post-production, and he asked me if, if he could borrow, uh, if he could use my monster that I've made to liked it, if he could put it in his movie. <laughs> And I said, sure, and then we, you know, John Berg and I built the stuff and then took it over to Dennis at ILM and he licked the scene to the background and we shot it over a couple of days and that
0: was that. That was that. But then what was it like jumping into Empire and kind of taking what you've learned from from Star Wars and then working on, on Piranha and then turning that into what now is, is a, standing alone as one of the most impressive visual effects movies of all time, Empire Strikes Back? Yeah, well, you know what I mean? It's was, it was part of
1: the continuum. We actually didn't learn anything on the first Star Wars. It was just a job. We right. did it, you know. And, uh, you know, we did it really quickly and and because uh, it had to be executed quickly. And we could tell, you know, and we had always wanted to work on theatrical features doing visual effects. Right. And, we're you know, hands with George Lucas. And George ran us the scenes that we were going to be working on it, looked pretty cool, but of course nobody had anticipated the, the huge success that it was, and once that happened, once Star Wars became Star Wars, uh, maybe a year, year and a half later, they started pulling together a team to move up to Northern California from Los Angeles, and uh, I was part of that team That uh, because they wanted to extend this, the stop-motion stuff to the uh, Imperial Snow Walkers, and, with uh, Tom tom character. So, uh, while I was living in LA, George had me do a bunch of drawings and some, uh, three dimensional, uh, maquette of the, the, the Tom Tom. Right. John Bird would pick up stuff up there. He was currently working on, or simultaneously working on a prototype for the walkers, uh, uh, with, uh, Joe Johnson. And so we would go up there every, you know, a couple of weeks and show him our progress. And then eventually, once things got the, the, end, production.
0: the thing that really sticks out to me from the making of Empire, and you can explain it better than pretty much anyone else on the planet, which is the evolution of go motion as opposed to stop motion. For the people listening, what was that process like of figuring out the importance of motion blur and, and then making it kind of part of this integral process of, of the Star Wars movies and, and beyond?
1: It was it was a no-brain. Now the the walkers were all done with traditional stop-motion animation. There was no funny stuff involved with that. But uh, this tom-tom character had to run at like 25 or 30 miles an hour, and uh, that was always kind of a problematic thing for stop-motion in that uh, stop-motion process because every single frame was a clean frame. Um, It tended to look very staccato, and and we you know. thought motion animators have been experimenting with motion blades for years and years, and you know, none of them were successful. They were really elaborate and didn't look that good. And it became—it was really clear. I would go visit Dennis and uh, and Ken. They were uh, on the first hour was shooting on the, the night crew, mm-hmm. and that's where I became aware of motion control technology. And it was, it was very clear that all we had to do was just try hooking up. Uh, a stop-motion puppet to that and see what happened, and so that's what one of the very first things we did, Ken Ralston and I set up, uh, we didn't have a stop-motion puppet at the time, so I used uh, it was a, a stop-motion puppet that I created for Joe Dante's Piranha, and we used that as a test, mm-hmm. and, uh, and in the afternoon, shot a couple of tests, got stuff back, and it worked, and that's what we were going to do. <laughs> so, yeah it it wasn't it wasn't very stressful at all it was just we tried stuff and uh and if it worked it worked and if it didn't we tried to figure out
0: something else i guess then moving to return of the jedi your role shifted and grew and turned into heading up my favorite part of of the star wars movie making like saga which was the creature shop what was that like bringing in People that had worked on the original Star Wars movies, uh, but then also newcomers like Kirk Thatcher, and, and building this team of people that really just created this whole new universe from that first work that you did on the Cantina to, to then five six years later on Jabba's palace. The charge I was
1: given with uh, given was you know to uh, head up the creature department and work very closely with. Uh... The, uh, uh, at that point, one of the art directors, Neil Rodas, uh, was in charge of costume design and then, uh, Aggie, rog- Aggie Rogers was the head of the costume department. So all of our shops were congregated all around the creature shop and we kind of fed each other and worked side by side developing the, the costumes and the, and the creatures at the same time. And so, you know, I didn't, I didn't think that I was necessarily the best person to run that department, you know, uh, but the only other people that were out there that, that could have done it was like Rick Baker and uh, maybe Rob Boteen, mm-hmm. and but George somehow had confidence in me and, and knew that, I think uh, Rob and Rick were used to working with bigger budgets, and I've, I, you know, been working on some Roger Corman films and low-budget films, right. and i kind of embraced that ideology of just Doing the bare minimum to you know get something that would be on screen for a couple of seconds and it wouldn't stand the scrutiny of you know museum quality work and just get the stuff done and so uh, you know I think on on that level you know I, I over time kind of learned to be you know a, a halfway adequate creative manager for for creative people and. You kind of had to be because practically everybody that, that we had to hire had never done anything like that before. There were just a couple of people that I knew with from England that had worked for, um, you know, on the Muppet stuff like that, Crystal and, and that kind of stuff. Right. And um, you know, hired, you know, experienced mold makers and, and that, but, you know, uh, the actual design team was actually like really pretty small. And the construction team, I don't know, I don't remember, we, you know, we probably had less than, you know, 20 people in that
0: shop working on the creatures. Right. What was some of the creatures that stand out to you? In my mind, thinking back, the Rancor, of course, and then can you talk a little bit about the first idea George had of putting a man in a suit for the creature, and then kind of turning that into a stop-motion creation?
1: Yeah, uh, George had, well, I designed the the Rancor character that that George picked, but I didn't design it as like a thing that a guy in a suit could be. I just kind of let it, you know, design itself was like this, this creature uh, that, you know, would probably that gotten to be done with stop or go motion. Right. But we went down the staff trying to go a, a suit. George wanted to do like the best Godzilla suit ever, and we just kind of failed. I mean, the design didn't didn't lend itself to being a guy in the seat, number one, so it moved crappy And... I mean, it's just hard to like, and make it look good right. and convincing, and it was just hard, you know. And uh, so we shot a bunch of stuff, and it was pretty clear But by that time, it was the end of the schedule. And yeah, you know, George said, "Okay, well, you guys do whatever you can to get it done." <laughs> and uh, it was too late for it to be a stop motion or a go motion thing. So uh, Dennis's idea, well, uh, as we were building, we built the uh, skeleton was a stop motion thing. But at some point, you know, along the way it became very clear and then, then it's kind of redesigned the scene so that uh, that, that character would be a, um, a high-speed hand puppet shot shot with an over camera, which would allow us to, you know, execute the scene, you know, in the, in the last three months of the, of the production and get it in the camera.
0: One of the things that I don't really hear a lot is the um makeup that you helped with for the emperor what was that process and and how was that kind of implemented i
1: sculpted up a mask uh, a latex appliance um and rick Baker came and applied it to an actor and i kind of had this wacky idea of shooting a chimpanzee on the set and uh compositing in the chimpanzee's eyes into the emperor's head Sort of worked, sort of did but, you know, it was better than just having a team and I, right? Right. So Rick came up and he applied the thing, and we shot it, and then he went home, and that was that. I called it a day. A lot of stuff happened really quickly, you know, almost without thinking. It's like, this needs to get done, you know, and it found yourself on the schedule, and you walked into a room and, you know, lit the thing and shot it, and... And moved down the next
0: thing. Yeah, then it became iconic for millions of people. <laughs> very, very casual. I guess looking back then on, on Return of the Jedi, especially, and the creature shop, are there anything that really stick out to you, like you were saying, that took a long time then, that really took a lot of um, efforts? I'm thinking of like Jabba, I think, went through a lot of design processes, and finally the maquette that you designed was then given to Stuart Freeborn and his team to, to build out. Is there anything that really is, is, sticks to your mind about that, that whole process? Yeah,
1: well, George was, you know, I mean, particularly for Java, I mean, he was, that was an important character for for George. So he had, you know, a lot of us, uh, Joe Johnston and Nilo Rodas and Ralph McQuarrie and I, all contributed uh, designs for um, Java, and I did a, I did about three or four that George rejected, and he rejected the other ones, and then I came up with a thing that he finally finally. Uh, you know, accepted that he needed to, you know, fit what he had in mind, which was, you know, something that was kind of like a big slide. I and mean, like what you normally do, you know, when you're confused, you ask the director, you know, what he had in mind, and um, ask for direction, and I asked him if there was an actor that he could cast as job, who would that be? And he said, Sidney King Street, and then that, that clarified things in my mind in terms of the character.
0: I guess moving from Star Wars, um, one of the movies that just has my whole heart, and I live in Dallas, and so it's a, a big thing. It, it is RoboCop, and the work that you did on RoboCop just really is so iconic and, and so sticks out. How did you first get involved with that production and, and working what then became a, a long-standing career of collaboration? You
1: know, the John Davis, who's the producer of RoboCop, had produced Piranha. So, you know, John had hired me and John Burke to do that job, and John and I had become friends, and John was a big fan of stop motion and Matt Payne's and visual effects. And so, uh, the Robocop script, s 209, was an opportunity to, you know, work together again, so he hired me to do that scene, and by that time, there were those scenes, and by that time I had set up my own studio, I had kinda Left ILM and, you know, I've worked for them on a particular show, but then I've worked on, on other shows. And, uh, so we did the x 209, uh, at my studio and, um, uh, I hired this, uh, he's just a kid. He's got a Craig Hayes who's like a brilliant designer and engineer to design Ed 209. And, uh, he built a full-scale prop and, fabricated a um, stop motion carapace around sure that same moment Derek Clark had made and um, I mean, we we shot a very old school, very Ray Carry House and right like. Uh, all the backgrounds that we shot in Dallas were shot on um, an eight per Disc division format, which is a larger format. Uh uh, so that when you copy it uh, back as you're projecting it, the resolution doesn't start to fall apart. I'm all the way Harry the and that their own floor purse. So yeah, we did it like that and it worked out and uh that was all good.
0: And that was it. The the story that really sticks out to me is your work on Jurassic Park, both first starting off with stop motion, then really adapting and, and learning and, and changing really what visual effects could be by making sure that computer generated effects were grounded within that, that skeleton. What was that process like for you? Both figuring out what that would look like for a dinosaur and how a dinosaur would move, but then adapting both Yourself and then the technology as it was evolving.
1: Well, you know, it was actually quite dramatic for me, you know, and that it was like a huge sea change. Although, you know, you know, when we switched from, make a turn from stop motion animation to go motion animation, there was still a relationship to, you know, a hands-on approach, even though it was just kind of a transitory thing, working with computer and programming in the, uh, the movement of the, of, the, of the character. So you had to kind of relearn, re-educate, kind of reinvent even yourself in terms of how, you went about doing things and, and Jurassic Park kind of had that in the stage it was, it was like, I have no idea about, about, about Jurassic. I mean, I was certainly aware of it because uh, I'm friends with Dennis DeAaron and he kind of kept me involved and would bring me on occasionally to look at, you know, the CG stuff they were working on like Young Sherlock and the Abyss. So I was aware of of what they were doing, and uh, most interested in in the capabilities of doing compositing on the computer, which just made you know uh, the optical printer obsolete and, and made compositing tasks a lot easier. So I was primarily interested in that, and had no idea that things were at the point where they could be transformed into zero and ones to be transformed into a, a palpable, living, breathing character. And so uh, once I learned proof that that was indeed uh, possible, we did a test, and you know, that that's how we're going to do the movie. Uh, but by that time, you know, I, I'd kind of been kicked upstairs. You know, I, I was, like, slowly kind of moving away from actually hands-on work just because of the volume of the material. Like in, in Robocop 2, uh, you know, my, practically everything after I left on I- uh well, I am too. We we're all very involved in the um, pre-production and the planning and, and uh, production, going out and shooting, and post-production, wrapping everything up. It was great because we worked you know, with Lucas in, in proximity to Ben um, you know, Burt, the sound department, right. and John Dunham and, and Mark Lucas, in the editing department. So it was all there, you know? So it was... It was you know, it was a filmmaking school by osmosis and getting yep. paid for it. And so, you yeah, know, it was just, that was, you know, once again, luck came knocking on the door and it did with, you know, Jurassic Park. And I just knew stuff, you know. And since a kid, I was kind of an amateur paleontologist and knew all the theories and knew all the characters. So it was kind of helpful in, in you know, polishing some aspects of the, that David Kepp was writing to, you know, exchange some of the, the dinosaurs that Crichton had in the book and things that I thought were more interesting and more dynamic. And so I can, I just kinda was like on of watch because what even, you know one his direction was he wanted the dinosaurs to be portrayed as animals and not as monsters. Right. And so um, that was a you know very specific kind of you know direction There's a certain there kinds of things you have to do that are kind of like science to uh, make the things palpably believable.
0: Right. No, and it, it worked. <laughs> it, it definitely worked. I guess from Jurassic Park and, and then your own studio, Tippett Studio, and the work that you were doing on Mad God for... 25 years what kind of sticks out to you let's say with the mad god process putting together a story and of you know I think you call them tone poems ended up being a beautiful piece Well, what was that like working on something for such a long time and growing not only as a person but as a, as a visionary and as a technical artist
1: well I mean it was, it was an experimental film in regard to at some point I realized that um, you know uh that what was available to me creatively in Hollywood uh, and through the studios, which are essentially banks, was, you know, it's, it's commercial art. Right. And so and no one's going to give you the money to do anything unless they think it, it's bankable. And something like Mad God was a project that um, that I, I couldn't, I could never, I could, to this day, I couldn't pitch. If you asked me to tell you what it was about, I couldn't tell you. Right. Uh, uh you know, I, I, it was a totally different mindset, you know, because I, I did not go to film school. I went to art school and was interested in art history and just do, like, you know, conceptual art and, you know, less traditional art forms, but also really interested in, in cinema and the, the potential that one had to use the tools to create certain elements of, of spectacle. And you know there was a lot of spectacle that I uh, I, I really wanted to include in, a, in an idea. The, the foremost of which was um, the uh, inspiration by the Dutch artist, you know, 14th, 15th century Hieronymus Bosch, and um, and then you know just a lot of other you know filmmakers that I I, I admired like Carl Riemann and. You know, I mean, all over the map—Valley and just different kinds of you know approaches. That again, they all, all tended to be things that were like kind of cobbled together with you know limited resources and kind of making it up as you as you went along. And that was uh, I wanted to work in that milieu of like. Not not doing what you do in the day job and exclusively working from intention, you know, towards a, a date on a on a on a calendar, a schedule, but to kind of allow the thing to grow, and that was going to take time. And it was going to take time because I didn't have a lot of money, mm-hmm. and um, so it was going to be primarily self-funded by me selling artifacts that I had from. The movies I'd worked on are doing Kickstarter, and I would work on them every day, uh, and um, and then on the weekends, uh, 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 volunteers volunteer crew would come in that varied over the years. Right, and we just kind of put it together that way, nice. and finally, you know, I was gonna have it be like, you know, I, I thought it would probably be like around forty minutes. But then one thing went to the next and everything kept expanding. And I, I uh, ended up with 80 minutes. Of, so it's a theatrical feature film. And I'm, I'm touring the country now. I'm going, you know, over the world showing that, that we've, we've completed the first three uh, chapters. I, I executed them as chapters, kind of like, um, you know, uh, writers would do by in, in magazines. Um, you know, by by publishing a chapter of the book until tell you know you have a book and then publishing that as a like a, a novel and so that was the, kind of the idea behind that job and now we're at the point where it's done being shot and it will be uh, in post production um, for the next year and I have this distributor to the Alamo Glass House and uh, got some completion funds to finish it, so uh, we'll be, uh, you know, uh, in about a year, going through the, mach- the next machinization of, uh, you know, trying to find an audience for sort the of thing, and that's a job in and of itself, because it's going to have to be a, like a, kind of a slow burn grassroots kind of a thing, where we have to, you know, start small and hope that the thing finds its audience. I mean, I've been mean, working on that for the last 10 years so it, it's got whatever you know demographic of people out there that are interested in that kind of thing right. and then whether or not we can actually find a larger audience really be seen. but hopefully once you know we're able to get the actual distribution and more publicity you know i'm going find myself traveling all over the world uh, with the first three parts these french guys uh Alexander Concert and uh Jules Pinto just made a documentary and so that's going around. So we're touring that. So are just trying to build up, you know, that buzz, getting people's eyes on, on this thing and generating some some interest. Yeah. So you know, that's kinda of where we're at with that.
0: Definitely. Well I know I know there's interest both for, for Mad God and also for what you just mad dreams and, and monsters and I'm so excited to see both finalized and completed mr Tippett. thank you so much you've been an inspiration to me since i was little and and making action figure stop-motion movies because i saw your behind the scenes footage and and now i'm working for fangoria and it's kind of um surreal getting to talk to you so i really appreciate your time
1: oh i i profusely (laughs)
0: apologize well uh thank you thank you again (laughs) uh we'll talk soon hey you're welcome all right bye-bye bye-bye Thank you again to Mr. Tippett for taking the time out of his busy schedule to come on the show. I really haven't stopped smiling since and it was literally a dream come true. Be sure to visit madgodmovie.com for information on how to watch his latest project and be sure to check out Mad Dreams and Monsters, the new documentary about him, coming soon. It's been 50 episodes of Talking Bay 94 and I am so grateful to you all for the listens, the support, and the love. This has been such an incredible journey and really, we're just getting started. So until next week, stay tuned, leave a five-star review, and may the Force be with you.